a long time ago when I first got 23andMe, I got my report back and I'm like, oh shit, all the conditions I know my family has are in my genes. Like I, I could see it. And actually that was the moment when I realized, wait, I know this for a fact. I already know my family history. Now I have evidence that I have these risk factors. What can I do about this? For a moment, I want you to close your eyes and think about what life would be like if you always felt healthy. Imagine waking up and feeling confident about how much you should move, how much caffeine you need, and exactly how much sleep you need. You could even know the diseases that might be a threat based on your genetics so you could potentially prevent them before they become a problem. Each day, you would feel energized, age better, and live your best life. It might seem far-fetched, but the world of personalized wellness is here. And today's guest will help you see all of the amazing changes that are improving how we understand the human body and what we can do to be healthier than ever. Today, I'm joined by Anne Wojcicki and Dr. Molly Malouf. Anne is the CEO and co-founder of 23andMe. She co-founded the company in 2006 after a decade spent in healthcare, focusing primarily on biotechnology companies. With more than 12 million users now, 23andMe has brought personalized wellness to the public, including the first and only direct-to-consumer DNA test that includes FDA-authorized genetic health risk, cancer predisposition, carrier status, and even pharmacogenetics reports. Dr. Molly Malouf is on the frontier of personalized medicine, medical technology, health optimization, and scientifically-based wellness endeavors. She has worked as an advisor or consultant to more than 40 digital health, consumer health, and biotechnology companies. In her concierge practice, Dr. Molly provides health optimization and personalized medicine to high-achieving entrepreneurs, investors, and tech executives in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, as well as award-winning Hollywood actors and musicians. Her book, The Spark Factor, will be out in January of 2023. In this episode of First in Line, you'll learn about the things you can do today to feel, look, and perform better than ever, and the innovations of tomorrow that are helping us all optimize every aspect of our health. This episode is brought to you by Element. I'm obsessed with all things health and wellness. I love learning about the latest trends, trying different hacks, and figuring out what works best for my body. And if there's one thing I know for certain, it's that hydration is essential to better health. Unfortunately, most of us don't realize that there's a more effective way to hydrate. Element is a tasty, science-backed electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means just the right amount of salt without all the sugar, food coloring, artificial ingredients, and other unnecessary fillers. Right now, Element is offering my listeners a free sample pack with any purchase, that's eight single-serving packets, free, with any Element order. That's a great way to try all eight flavors or share Element with a friend. Get yours at drinklmnt.com Brit. Try it risk-free and experience the endless benefits of better hydration. I'm so excited to have two of my favorite leading ladies in the healthcare realm here today, Anne Wojcicki, I mean, 23andMe changed my life in many ways. 
I won't even talk about how it helped me find okay. my biological grandparents wow. because my dad was adopted. That We could save that for another episode, but a medium was also involved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you have been such a pioneer and I've been on the platform, I think, for over a decade now. I was one of the first people to sequence my genes. I wanted to be a geneticist in high school. I was just fascinated when I first heard about 23andMe. And then Molly, you are like the concierge doctor to everyone I know in Silicon Valley and beyond. You are also on the board and advisory teams of so many interesting health startups. And I think you're one of my favorite biohackers to follow. You're always testing the new next thing of the quantified self. And so I'm really excited about the conversation today between both of you because you're coming at personalized healthcare and the future of wellness and health with such different backgrounds and perspectives. And I really have so many questions about where we're all going with this next. But I'm going to actually start with you, Anne, if that's cool. Just to back it up a little bit. You know, you were arguably one of the first to give individuals out there more control and insight into their personal health. And before we look forward at everything coming down the pike for the future, can you take us back a little bit? What did you see and why did you create 23andMe when you were first getting all this started? 23andMe was kind of born from the frustration that I had investing in healthcare companies when I worked on Wall Street. And I naively went into the investing world, like really excited about like all the opportunities that, you know, healthcare investors were doing and the opportunities in biotech. And I do like, it's, it's amazing. The science, it's amazing education to see like the science that's going on. But as I also started looking at areas like dialysis and oxygen and HMOs, and then even the death care industry, I kind of started to realize like all these really perverse incentives and realize like, look, I can, look at something like dialysis and I can monetize, like I can kind of do almost like a discounted cash flow of like what dialysis patients are worth today. And I started to think like, that's just like really, really disturbing. And, and then I also like, I'd be in these conversations with all these like healthcare providers and hospitals and we'd be arguing about data or like, you know, something like decisions. And I realized like, but the patient was never in the room. Like us as a consumer was, was never involved. And if you think about healthcare, it's all B2B businesses, meaning it's like all like the pharma sells to the PBMs, that sells to the hospitals, that sells to your insurance company. But like, if you just think about like, because you, you're kind of like just an agent for everyone to monetize you, but you don't actually control any of the purse strings. And so I just started to get really insulted with like how the healthcare industry really assumes that you're incapable of making decisions yourself and that no one caters to you. Like if people catered to you, like they wouldn't smell the way they smell, like blood draws would be a more pleasant experience, all of it. Like it would just be different. So 23andMe started out with this idea that like, I'm going to actually cater to the consumer and that... People don't realize like the giant loophole of healthcare is that you're actually in charge of yourself and you are totally in power of like all your information, all your decisions, but they all make you feel like you're incompetent and you don't have control and they make it hard, but you're actually in control. And so my goal was almost like to wake up the masses. Like, guess what? You guys, like you're in charge of yourself and you have this ability to take control of your health and if you can recognize some of the perverse incentives that you make money when you're sick, but you don't make money when you're healthy, 
then I can actually empower you to make some of those decisions, see transparently what each business is good for. So 23andMe came out as ideas like, first and foremost, I want to empower the, the individual. And I'm direct to consumer because I don't want to sell B2B. Like I don't want to be involved with any other aspect of the healthcare system. I want to cater to you. And I got into genetics because I see that's your fun. It's like the fundamentals of your health. Like, you know, when the human genome was first sequenced, we came out and said, you know, the genome's going to transform how we predict, prevent, and treat all human disease. And I was the first in line, like, sign me up. Like, I want, I want this. Like, I want to know. first in line? Like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> yes. tell, me, tell, me, yes. tell me what I'm at risk for, and then how do I change my behavior? And what I saw it just, like, wasn't getting adopted. So 23andMe started really with this idea, like, let's empower you, the individual, not like all of the various players in the healthcare system, but let's empower you to get access to your genome. And then we're going to help you be as healthy as possible based on knowing what your genetic risks are. And I think that's so interesting because I, I, I think I did this, you know, the spit test that I sent in in the mail and got my genetic report back in is 2010 a fair year? 2012, yeah, 2013? We started okay. in 2006. So okay. it's time for okay. you to upgrade. But, but oh, yeah. I've already upgraded. I've upgraded okay. like a bunch of times. Okay. I've reached, yeah. I respit all those things. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've I purchased it for my whole family because as a woman, you have two X chromosomes. You actually need like yeah. a father or a brother to get your yeah, full yeah, genome. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, all of those things. But what I was fascinated by was like people were scared to get this detailed report of their health. Like I think there was like this – well, it was also like the security of people having their DNA and all that stuff. But like, this is the most comprehensive list of personal traits, medical traits, wellness traits that I have in my life still today. Yeah. And I and I wear my Apple Watch every day. I have an Aura Ring. I've got all these other devices that try to track my health. And yet 23andMe is still giving me the most information yeah. about you know, myself as it can be. I have to say the a long time ago, when I first got 23andMe, I was one of the first people to do it. I started using it in my practice like immediately. But I remember I be, I was actually like, I got my report back and I'm like, oh shit, all the things that I know my family, are, all I know, all the conditions I know my family has are in my genes. Like I, I could see it. And actually that was the moment when I realized, wait, I know this for a fact. I already know my family history. Now I have evidence that I have these risk factors. What can I do about this? And I started testing all of my clientele and make, making sure that everybody had their genetics tested because I feel like it's one of those important facets of your health that people don't really think enough about, which is this is the architectural plans of your body. And so you need to understand like what the plans look like. And you also have to understand that you're the general contractor. So you can go out and change the way that those plans are expressed by how you live your life, but without knowing what you're at risk for, without knowing your family history. And maybe you don't even have, maybe let's say you're adopted and you don't know your family history. If you don't, if you don't have access to that data, you won't really know where should you, where should you actually direct your resources for optimizing your health? Have your clients really been, yeah, have your clients been like amenable to that or have they been like, have you seen a, a notable change over the years? I mean, my clients specifically come to me because they want hyper-personalized medicine. They want precision medicine. They want optimal health and they want to know everything about themselves. And they're mostly executives, investors, and entrepreneurs. That's kind of been my niche. But um, like, it's it's super interesting because you can take your 23andMe data and you can run it through all these different readers now. And so there's websites like LiveWello, there's Prometheus, there's, I mean, I would spend hours on like my client's genetics, just trying to figure out like what 
what's actionable here? What can I do for them? What can I, what kind of advice can I give them? And then also how can I make sure that they don't take the wrong medications? Like the fact that we don't have genetics in the medical, like in, in electronic health records today is still like absurd, (laughs) but it is an issue because there are a lot of things that people could react to if they had the wrong medication during surgery, or they could have like a catastrophic event. So I, I think genetics is one of those baseline things that everybody should have. And it's funny because when I first started my practice, I had a client who had gone to all these doctors and they were like, what's wrong with you? You know, he's like, they're like, he's like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I keep on having these really high um, blood pressure episodes with like pretty serious anxiety attacks. And just like everyone thought he was just, it was just crazy. 23me at the time only did 14,000 genes, I believe only like half the genome. So it was really early. And, um, I, I went to a company called Folget labs and I was like, okay, I want a clinical exome, which is like your whole entire genetics. And they literally were like, you can't have this. And I'm like, what do you mean? I can't have this. I'm ordering this for a patient. They're like, this is not a clinical test. This is for research purposes only. And I was like, okay, I'm doing research on this patient. I need this test. And I ended up finding a very weird genetic mutation that actually was not, it was a heterozygous mutation, which means one of the mutations was wrong. Um, it wasn't fully, it was like hard to partially expressed, but in his case, he had this very interesting, um, genetic, genetic problem. He didn't actually believe me when I told him I thought this was the cause of his condition. He went to a geneticist expert who like studied this specific gene and said, what do you think of this? What do you think of my history? And the doctor's like, this is a totally interesting expression of this gene, but yeah, this definitely is the cause of your problem. So I accidentally discovered a weird genetic condition and then, you know, after doing a careful pedigree, which I should have done early in the, in this guy's case, discovered he had consanguinity in his history, mm-hmm. which is basically um, when you have like in the, when there's inbreeding in your family. Anyway, genetics is like some one of those things that I think you can do. A, we should be we should be able to have all this information at birth and it should be in our chart at birth, but it's not. Right. So if you're lucky, you can have fine doctors or you go to 23andMe. And just like run your genetics and start hacking your genes and start figuring out what's what's going on inside your body. And I like the idea. I like this analogy, Molly, that you said. Uh, genetics is like your architectural plan for your body, and we are the general yeah. contractors. And so, Anne, you know, can you give a sense of what are all the things right now that people can learn about themselves? beyond their ancestry and they have brown eyes and brown hair, but like truly about like their health and wellness profile through 23andMe. And and then how are they now taking advantage of that to optimize their everyday health in normal life? I mean, there's so many. We have, you know, seven FDA authorizations. Like we, we now have so many clinical reports and those range from areas like um, cystic fibrosis, which is something you potentially are a carrier for and could pass down to your children, to things like the BRCA variant, which is associated with hereditary breast cancer, to, you know, now we just got, you know, more cancer reports, so like the, the prostate cancer report that just came out, the hereditary colon cancer one. And those are all like highly actionable, like areas where you should be following up and getting like real clinical monitoring. And then there's the whole area that Molly talked about a bit, which is pharmacogenetics like really understanding how you're going to respond to medication. And especially with this in the mental health crisis that we're in, that there's lots of genetics associated with the medication. And it's helpful for people to understand why, like one thing that keeps me up at night is like, why is genetics not adopted broadly? So like Molly's obviously adopted it, but like in a higher end practice, like why is it that it's not broadly adopted? 
And I actually have had insurance companies and other practitioners say, like, in the case of antidepressants, that they're all generic meds. So if you take one and you take it for 12 weeks and it doesn't work, and then you stop and you take another one for 12 weeks, and then that doesn't work and you take another one for 12 weeks, it's a really bad patient experience, but it doesn't necessarily cost any more money to the healthcare system if you got the right medication on day one. And it's part of where people have to realize, like the challenge with having your insurance paying for things is that everything has to have a cost analysis. So like is a $200 test, 23 means $200, does that test save them money? And for a generic drug, if you're just going to cycle between generic drugs, it's all the same to them. So it doesn't. But it obviously makes a big difference to you. Like one of the other examples is there's a um, genetic health report called Factor V Leiden. And that is associated with blood clotting. And so like we're women here, you're pregnant. So women who have the factor V mutation are at higher risk of clotting. And that's particularly meaningful if you're on birth control pills and you potentially want to take a different type of birth control pill. And also if you're pregnant, you have a different type of path that you're followed if you're pregnant. Mm -hmm. So again, I've been told by various companies that, you know, we don't routinely test for factor V because it's just cheaper to treat the people who have those conditions than it is to broadly screen everybody. Hmm. And so that's part of the issue that we have sometimes with genetics is that people have to look at what's the cost of prevention and is it in the time frame of that organization? But there's absolutely 100% a reason why everyone should have their genetic information and how they can use that either for their own behavior change, for potentially preventing an adverse event, for better thinking about their future, or even potentially having a better kind of treatment plan if they do already have a condition. Mm -hmm. And I think I think that's really important because, like what you're saying, we've got the preventative measures for sure. And by the way, the blood clotting one rings true to me. My mom had a severe stroke after she went on birth control pills, so I assuming there's something like that. Um, I think it'd be, I mean, do you know, did she have the factor five mutation? Uh, I, I don't know, but like, I should know, I should know that I'm pregnant. Right now. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Now I'm nervous, but we'll go, I'm going to go run some more tests after this episode. And, um, but and so I think those things, the uh, breast cancer, prostate cancer, like all these things are huge. And what types of medicine should I be taking that may or may not, um, mesh well with my genetics. But then there are things like how, much should I sleep? Or, you know, what is my predisposition to caffeine? Are those things that people find really interesting and useful and practical to act on? And I asked this to both Anne and Molly, since you, you've both experimented quite a bit with the foundation of genetics uh, for healthcare. Yeah, I think it's hard. Nutrition studies are really hard to do. And I think people have to realize like when you, when you do a study, you need to like really control, like you need to know exactly what people are doing. And it's been like well-known, like getting a food diary that's accurate, like outside of a prison, it's really hard to accurately do it. Like honestly, like some of the most accurate nutrition studies have come from prison. So it's hard to know exactly how genetics intersects with food. Like we have a report on saturated fat, which people do really like and people are, are interested in. But in general, it's really hard to do. I think the main thing you can look at is areas like your propensity for type 2 diabetes or propensity for, um, we're talking about reports like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is like sudden cardiac death. 
how do you manage your exercise and your diet? So for instance, mm -hmm. if you know you're high risk for type two diabetes, then maybe you work with your clinician or a coach to figure out like, well, how should you actually be managing your food? And maybe you can't absorb as much sugar as I can because I don't have that same kind of risk factor. So I think rather than getting into like, hey, should you be eating more broccoli versus kale, where there's not a lot of data on that, it's kind of more about like, hey, here's your categories that you should be focusing on. Like, should you do intensive interval training? Like there's also data on things like atrial fibrillation. You don't want to actually do intensive amounts of exercise for more than an hour. So understanding like what your risks are, what are those like broad scopes of like how you should be thinking about your lifestyle and then you, you know, incorporating that. So not the details of broccoli of kale, but like the big picture. Molly, what would you prescribe to your patients if you saw any of these? Like for me, I have, I have, um, endurance muscle genetic genetics. My husband has like fast twitch sprinting muscles, which makes sense. He loves like fast skiing and sprinting and I'm yeah. like the five mile trail run type of girl. Um, and that is really interesting for me in terms of how I plan out my exercise routines and things like yeah. that. But do you take this into account with your clients and even yourself? Cause you're like the biohacking queen when you are thinking about exercise, diet and sleep. So when it comes to nutrition, I definitely feel the most confident about how I try to help people find the optimal diet for their bodies. And again, like I've said before, like your genes are kind of like the plans, but really how you, how you eat is what really matters at the end of the day. So the, the goal is to give people data that's going to drive better behaviors. So if somebody has APOE4, we're going to look at their saturated fat intake. The average American is eating over 20% of their diet in saturated fat, which is actually too much. Um, although most recently there was a, there was a new, new paper that was published on, um, on that basically link saying that saturated fat has, is actually not linked to heart disease. So my conclusion is like, what's the answer here? And I like to look at like evolutionary biology. And if you look at primitive, um, diets, they were actually more like 10 to 15% of, of um, the diet was saturated fat. And that's actually what a typical French diet is. And we know that their diets associated with lots of rich foods that have saturated fat in them. So what I try to teach people is like, if you are at APOE4, let's look at your diet. Let's try to cut out the things that we know are maybe a too, too much of an intake and get you into the healthy range and then measure not just your genes, but also measure your, what I call it an NMR lipoprotein profile, which is let's look at how your diet is actually affecting your cholesterol levels. Let's just take a look and see if your body's responding positively or negatively to this type of nutrition. Um, there's, there's websites out there that you can take your 23andMe data and you can reanalyze it. And this is there. Now you have to understand that all these people that are making these readers are basing their opinions off of specific studies that they've chosen are, are significant. That doesn't mean that they are. It just means that a bunch of scientists and researchers came out and said, we think that these papers matter and we're going to use these to guide the recommendations that we give people. Having done all the analysis of my genes, I see some patterns and there are a few genes that you can take a look at that you can change your nutrition based off of. Um, some of them are including like your vitamin D metabolism, your VDR gene, um, also methylation metabolism, your B vitamins, checking your B12 and your folate metabolism can help you identify if you need more of these, um, these vitamins, to, um, which a lot of people just need in general and maybe don't consume enough of through fruits and vegetables. 
But then there's also vitamin A metabolism. And I'm one of those people who needs more vitamin A than the average person. So I supplement with organ meats and liver. And then PEM, um, PEMT is a, it's a choline um, gene. And I have a family history of Alzheimer's and I seem to do a lot better when I, when I, my brain seems to work faster when I supplement with choline. So I do like to pull in these genetic readers to just see, you know, let's, let's, let's try to identify if there are issues in these, per, in these people with nutritional metabolism. But then I like to measure on top of that. So I like to do laboratory testing, your own organic acid testing, and honestly take an omics approach to optimizing health. Now, what I'm doing today is like high touch and very, you know, expensive, but almost everything I've been doing in my practice since the very beginning is now becoming systematized like products that you could buy. So there's lots of companies now that will help you identify with your laboratory tests, with your genetics, what is the right nutrition and what are the right supplements for you. But again, you have to take these with a bit of a grain of salt because these are all based on, you know, studies that are on genetic SNPs that we don't necessarily know are proven, but are suggestive that you could make some changes with your lifestyle based on this information. Okay. Two questions. One, what is the, or what are some of the sites you use to interpret your 23andMe data, for instance, um, into um, these recommendations? Sure. I really like this website, My Gene Food. Um, they, they do a pretty darn good job at helping people identify like what they're, because like, here's the thing, as Americans, we have very mixed genetics. So like I'm part Middle Eastern, part European, and I actually do really well on like a Mediterranean diet meets a Scandinavian diet. Like that in between that seems to work well for me. Um, but like some, you know, you, you, so you can basically plug in your genes and see like, is this, is this dietary, um, lifestyle going to work for you or not going to work for you? But again, and are you, are you amenable to <laughs> these recommendation engines? I think the issue that we have with the recommendation, I haven't looked at it. I was just actually like pulling up the site, um, So one of the issues that we have with people who use the raw data is we haven't necessarily gone through an FDA validation level for all like various SNPs. So there's some, so when you look at the the genome, not all points, like of the 3 billion base pairs that are there, some are easier to read than others. It's kind of like certain last names, like Wojcicki is a harder last name to say than Smith. And so some genes are harder to read than others. So the reason why the FDA makes us do validation studies is they need to see that something's accurate. And we know specifically that there's some genes where the accuracy is poor. And so those are like, that's where when we have raw data, it comes with the warning. You can have your raw data, but I can't guarantee that all 600,000 data points are accurate. So the issue that we've had is that people will do the raw data analysis and then they go to a genetic counselor and they're like, hey, I found this, but maybe that was like one of those genes that's really hard to read and then it's not accurate. So we don't recommend that because it's not always accurate. Like we try to focus on what is it that we can like really accurately do. I'd say the other thing, and Molly, I have no doubt this will come up, is this MTHFR gene. Yeah. MTHFR is super popular in um, sort of the alternative, like, like healthcare world. Um, And it's, 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 it's a gene that every, like people talk about it all the time. And we, like the scientific world, um, the research world, 23andMe, with all the data that we have, we do not see any associations with any kind of diseases with it. So we actually wrote a blog post, like why we don't have a report on MTHFR. Yeah. 
And at the same time, like lots and lots, like people will stop me at the farmer's market and they're like, MTHFR saved my life. And what I'm is, like, sorry, what is MTHFR? Well, you can chat about it. <laughs> it, it. It seems like an acronym for mother effort to me, but mm-hmm. I don't know it where we're going like with this. Yeah. Is <laughs> it like... <laughs> It's it's a folate methyl methyl transferase folate yeah, and and people people will take folate with it. I don't know what else people do. It hasn't been on my radar for a while. Yeah, but people will take vitamin supplements. I mean, it's really important for people not to like, ideally not to do things with their genes that could be dangerous, right? So like, right. if you, I have seen people over supplement with with folate because of this gene. Well, they'll take like. 15,000, you know, milligrams of, or I think it's IU or milligrams of a folate a day or something ridiculous. So like, I'm definitely not prescribing that type of, um, intervention for people, but if somebody, I mean, if, if you actually look at some of these more mainstream psychiatric, um, like genetics testing companies, um, that are really, that are ide- ideally trying to help people identify the right medications, they will pull in the, the MMTHFR gene often to help people identify whether or not this could help them with managing their mood. Another gene that's very common is the COMPT gene, the warrior or warrior gene. I find it's really useful for understanding a person's personality. And, you know, like there's been lots of warrior gene. Yeah. What does this mean? Is it like I am an ENFJ or (laughs) just like my Myers-Briggs? It it, it seems to be, some people seem to handle stress more effectively than others. Oh, that's me. Some people, and, and so some people, and if you actually just like check their genes, you often see that they have a homozygous, you know, warrior gene, the comp gene. Is this part of 23 in me, Anne? Can I go see you can, this? You can find it. You can, I mean, so there's, the, can I, I search for it? Most, it's going to be in the raw data, but not something it's we It's in have the raw data. Um, Genetic <gasps> Genie is probably the, probably the most commonly used website for, for getting these genes. It's really popular in the alternative health world. But again, like you have to always focus on the clinical manifestations of how you're feeling rather than just, just reading the genes and being like, okay, I need to go take the supplement. Um, yeah. I also the just want to say have that, like, is like the scientific bar that we have is like, like how we'll look at how many publications have been in it, how big, yes, like sure. in the early days of 23andMe, when you did it, we used to have a rating system. If you remember, there was like four stars for like a study that was super well validated, like cystic yeah. fibrosis was established. And then we would have a one star for some things that were early. Yeah. And if you have a study that's done in like 35, you know, Icelandic individuals, it's not necessarily applicable to all populations. That's, so that's it's like, might not be even applicable to the Icelandic population. So part of what we have with some of these studies is like, just what, what is the quality of the science? And like, can like, can we really accurately say, you know, to individuals, this is what it means for you. And I've, I've seen some of these companies that, you know, will take my DNA and develop the perfect kind of shampoo for my hair. Do you think all of this is BS? <laughs> Or is there any like truth to this? Should I be like subscribing to this genetic hair care company? I, um, you know, when I did Shark Tank, I remember there was a skincare company coming out like that. I, the reality is like there's not tons of data to support like, hey, this shampoo is really going to work for your DNA. Like, okay. I just, those so studies. Is, is, are we in like a trial? What I'm gleaming from all of this is like, we're kind of in this trial and error phase of health, like personalized health, where we have like our raw data, we have the blueprint. Uh, it's not like a hundred percent accurate. It's sort of referencing other people similar to us. And it's, it's a little fuzzy. 
it can be helpful for preventative measures, especially for disease risk and things like that. But for like lifestyle decisions on a day-to-day basis, I should probably be trying the Mediterranean diet for a few weeks, see how I feel. And if that's not working, maybe I try the keto thing or maybe maybe I need carbs. As a, And like, is that is that what it's coming down to? Like, is there like a trial and error method here? We focus a lot on like the condition, like conditions that are relatively easy to measure into like type 2 diabetes or atrial fibrillation and like doing that analysis and helping you understand those risk factors. And then I'm also like really, really interested in what are those things that you can do to prevent? So we do a lot of work, for instance, in Parkinson's is like, what are some of those things that you can do if you're genetically high risk? What are those things that you can do that potentially prevent Parkinson's, like how you exercise, the types of exercise, lateral movements, like things like that are really interesting. Um, Diet is just really hard to study. And we actually tried at one point, we did an 80,000 person study and we, you know, put people in a bunch of arms of like a low calorie diet, a low fat diet. It's really hard to, like, you don't necessarily get any kind of statistical significance about what people are going to respond to. Like essentially it pulls up a null, like you don't, like there's nothing there. So I would argue like in your shampoo, I'm not positive that there's actually a genetic association with what kind of shampoo is best for your hair. Or what skincare products are best for my face. Correct. Okay. All right. Good. No, this is good. I like to like weed out stuff that I don't need in life because I have so little time. Okay. So shampoo and hair, diet, maybe those are all trial and error or I just stick with what I, what I like to know. What about um, sleep? Uh, 23andMe tells me kind of on average how much sleep I need, what my wake-up propensity time is. Like, is there anything I can do to optimize my sleep? I think, you know, it's interesting. We chatted with Ariana Huffington, who wanted us to put out a report because, you know, she has the whole, um, you know, initiative about everyone needs at least eight hours of sleep. And there are, there is a genetic variant associated with some people who only need like four hours of sleep. And we like talked about putting out that report. I think we do have that genetic variant on our chip, but I think there was only like 50 people out of, you know, 13 million who have that. So we just didn't, we're like, we just, it, it didn't quite meet our priority list of like reports to put out to individuals like that versus breast cancer or colon cancer. Like it was not as important, but in general, like sleep is really important. And I would argue if you're high risk for type two diabetes, there's data about actually going to bed before 10 makes a difference. So when you go to sleep in those times, like all of that also can make a difference depending on some of your risk factors. This episode is brought to you by Element. I'm obsessed with all things health and wellness. I love learning about the latest trends, trying different hacks, and figuring out what works best for my body. And if there's one thing I know for certain, it's that hydration is essential to better health. Unfortunately, most of us don't realize that there's a more effective way to hydrate. Element is a tasty, science-backed electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means just the right amount of salt without all the sugar, food coloring, artificial ingredients, and other unnecessary fillers. Right now, Element is offering my listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. That's eight single-serving packets free with any Element order. That's a great way to try all eight flavors or share Element with a friend. Get yours at Drink lmnt.com slash Brit. Try it risk-free and experience the endless benefits of better hydration. Molly, yeah, tell me about your thoughts on sleep because you're like the ultimate biohacker sleep queen. (laughs) Like what are the things we could do? 
I mean, the biggest one is caffeine. I think a lot of people don't know that they have, you know, a slow metabolizer. And so a lot of people have anxiety these days. A lot of people have anxiety. Anxiety rates are going up like crazy. But it'd be really nice for people to know that, like, if all they needed to do was just cut out caffeine, then they could actually have an, an, an easier day. And I personally go in and out of ca- – like, I'll go in and out of um, – using caffeine or not using caffeine. And I'm kind of, I think I'm heterozygous for the slow metabolizing gene. And I noticed that like specifically when I'm under a lot of stress, the more caffeine I consume, the more stressed out I feel. And I, I did this coffee detox program. I designed it for Mudwater, this company that creates like a coffee alternative. And I, I, I realized that when I had gone off of caffeine during the pandemic, um, it really improved my mood and it really improved my sleep. Like my sleep, my anxiety basically went down to almost zero and my sleep was like so much better. And it was one of those things where I, I really thought that the amount of caffeine I was consuming was fine. But until you go off of it and realize like, actually I could do better without this. Uh, and now I use it as like a performance enhancing tool, but a lot of people are very dependent on it. And so a lot of people just like should know if they are a slow metabolizer or intermediate metabolizer and just see what it's like to not take it for a little while and slowly wean off of it because you can really improve how you feel. I happen to be a high caffeine metabolizer according to my genes. So as I sit here with my coffee right now, but I'm pregnant, but I'm watching my caffeine while I'm pregnant. Don't worry. But it was cool to me because it made me realize like I could have the cappuccino after dinner and still sleep fine. And, you know, I, I don't know. I'd love to know if you guys use any of these other tools like aura rings or eight sleep mattresses or, you know, special apps or features like for better health. And maybe you can each list out a few of the things that you personally like to use. But, you know, for instance, I, I did that test. I was like, well, let's see if this is correct. And I would drink a cappuccino after dinner and I fell asleep an hour later and I still got the same amount of deep sleep and light sleep and my HRV stayed stable according to all my devices. So I assume that like I am okay drinking a little bit of caffeine at night, but are there experiments you have tried or devices or tools that you each use to test or optimize your own sleep or, or anything else in your healthcare world? Well, I, I do, I have the Apple watch, I have the Fitbit and I have the aura ring and I do think knowing your sleep and knowing like I am pretty obsessed with the heart rate variability, the HRV score. And I do think it's really interesting how that can track holistically, like your state of like anxiety or stress and how much you have been sleeping and all of that. So an exercise, like it seems, it's a very interesting predictive score for me. Um, so I do think having all this information is really interesting and it's yet to really be studied on large scales. I would say the other area that I do just love are the um, continuous glucose monitors. And just a plug for a former 23andMe employee, Jesse Eisen, I can't say her last name, Eisenshop, who runs yeah. Glucose Goddess on, um, on Instagram. And she just wrote a book about, you know, managing your glucose and she's amazing. And she does like a really spectacular comparison of like what happens to your glucose spike if you eat ice cream like before dinner or ice cream after dinner and she has great little tips about things like well you should just have apple cider vinegar if you know you're going to eat dessert just like a little bit in your water makes a big difference so she's she has in a and i love it because it's also it's like real data like you can see how your scores evolve and everyone's going to be different. So I do think that's going to be one of the next big areas for people to play with. 
And Molly, you're like the glucose monitoring queen. You got me into glucose monitoring years ago and I was pricking yeah. my fingers and I know there's easier ways to do it now, but I was, I don't have diabetes. I was just like fascinated by understanding when I'm spiking or not. And maybe Molly, can you explain why it's important for people to track their glucose like this? Sure. And then what are the tools to use today if anyone's interested in, in doing this? Yeah. I mean, I am probably the person to talk to on this topic, specifically around the tech side, because I've been working with CGM since 2014. So I, I started putting the, and actually I know Jessie pretty well. She's fantastic. I once helped her get a place to live after she broke up with a guy. <laughs> She's an amazing woman. Her book's done really well too. So I just like want to give her a shout out. And I've actually used her screenshots in some of my presentations because she has, one of her gifts is she did product management for 23 I mean, she's really good at presenting data and information beautifully. But I, when I first started out, I was using the Abbott Freestyle Libre Pro, which is basically like a, it's like a sensor and a receiver that you had to carry in your hand. And I would order these in bulk and give these to my clients because at the time they didn't have one you could prescribe to uh, a pharmacy. So I started putting these things on me because I was doing some consulting for a company that is called Sano Intelligence. They got acquired by this company, OneDrop. And they were like, what can we measure in the blood and what should we measure and why? And I was like, well, if you could, or in the interstitial space in the skin. And I was like, you really want to measure sugar because this is the biggest problem that society is facing when it comes to metabolism. And it's only going to get worse. And this was 20, this is 2014. It's just skyrocketed rates of diabetes now. So at the time, when I first started using this thing, my fasting glucose was right below hundred. I was literally borderline pre-diabetic and I didn't even know it. And I thought I was a young, healthy woman and I, I had borderline pre-diabetes. And so that was something that really concerned me. And I realized I had to change a lot of things about how I was living. And it's actually, it was the very beginning of my health, my sort of health journey when I really, when I had just started my practice and I had just started, you know, figuring out how do you measure health? And so to me, blood sugar is the ultimate biomarker of health. It is a measurement that determines, it basically tells you how much you're fasting, how your fasting affects you. And it, it you can see your stress on the blood sugar curve, the noisiness of the curve, the glycemic variability is actually a reflection of how stressed out you are. And if you're fasting and your blood sugar is going up, that's because your body's got too much cortisol. And so cortisol will make stress. Cortisol is a stress hormone. It'll make your blood sugar go up it very, because it makes you more insulin resistant, but your cortisol can run really low if you're burned out. And then you can, you can actually struggle to maintain a normal blood sugar. So people who really struggle with burnout and really low cortisol levels, because maybe they've, I mean, 65% of doctors are burned out right now. Um, they'll struggle to keep their blood sugar stable throughout the night. So if you have to wake up in the middle of the night to eat something to actually fall back asleep, you're probably insulin resistant and you may have low cortisol. Um, and then as I mentioned, or like I've also mentioned um, that like what you eat determines what your blood sugar does after meals. And that's your postprandial blood sugar. And typically to get this number, you'd have to go to a clinic and you'd have to go get a bunch of sugar in a glucose tolerance test. But nobody wants to go to the lab and get a glucose tolerance test. You can run your own glucose tolerance test at your own home by putting a blood sugar monitor on and drinking 75 grams of glucose or just drink a Coke and see what your body does. What kind of blood sugar monitor do you recommend that people try? So right now, there are two main blood sugar monitors you can get. And Levels Health, I am an advisor. Um, they will prescribe you either a Dexcom or an Abbott Freestyle Libre. The thing you need to know is that like you can also buy a fingerstep blood sugar monitor at Walgreens if you don't want to get it. You know, that's pretty cheap. The downside of this fingerstick monitor is you're going to miss your spike if you don't measure it like the hour Constantly. after you eat. 
you're, unless you're measuring it every five minutes, you might miss that big spike. It can happen very quickly. Yeah. So, um, so that's one thing. So the levels, yeah. So, so basically is a thing you can wear for consistent monitoring. And I think it's, I think this is really interesting too. Yeah. It's just like, again, as someone who did this before, not because I have like an insulin issue, but I was curious to see my stress, my blood sugar and the things I eat and how that changes my mood and everything else. The continuous glucose monitor, I think, is an incredible way to do that, even just for a few weeks to get a sense of what your daily habits and patterns should be. I want to ask each of you, you know, this this area of personalized wellness and personalized health is talked about ad nauseum here in Silicon Valley, in the venture capital space, in the healthcare space, and alternative medicine and beyond. And I think a lot of kind of the mainstream are starting to hear about this, but still not totally sure what it means. What do you think is truly next? Like, what are the things that are coming that we don't yet even know or that way maybe we could once dream of or maybe five or 10 years into the future? Like what excites each of you about where this world is headed next for everyone out there? And let's start with you. Well, I think there's two things. One, I think that in order to really get the full value of the genome, it has to be integrated with the traditional healthcare world at some point. And so like that's going to become one of the next big things. Like for you to, like, if you know you're high risk for colon cancer, you know you're high risk for type 2 diabetes, like at some point you have to have your primary care clinician buying in to like help manage that in some way. So it's going to be on you, but there has to be sort of that partnership. So I think more and more there's a partnership between consumer initiated and the traditional world. And I think when we get into that world of food and lifestyle, What's really exciting is the fact that all of our data is now really starting to flow. So meaning like your Aura Ring, your Fitbit Watch, all of these various programs can either go through Apple Health Kit. There was a um, health and human service mandate that medical records actually all be flowing, like all the data starts to be flowing as of October 6th. So you're able to start to understand like how are people living their lives and even things like location is really important because like how often you spend time in a Taco Bell, how often you're in like a Central Valley where there's like more pollution versus like on the coast, like all those things matter. And you're going to be able to start to create these data sets to really then better understand health and genetic interplay. So I'd say step one is like the big picture things like areas where like early onset of disease and things that you can do to potentially manage that absolutely have this opportunity to be addressed right now. And I think further down the line, you're going to get better data about how your lifestyle really intersects with your genetics. Hmm. I love that. Yeah. And that means that we need, we need like the standard of who's collecting all this data in one profile. I feel like that's the thing everyone's trying to do. Well, it's coming there. It's totally coming. Yeah. Cool. You know, Molly, what about you? I, so Anne mentioned the, the stress score on her Apple watch and aura ring. And one of the coolest things that's coming is continuous heart rate variability monitoring. So right now people are wearing the Whoop, they're wearing the Apple Watch, they're wearing the, the O-ring, but they're not really giving you a real-time score because they're on your finger. But there's companies like Hanu Health that are just launching that are developing, basically they're, they're using a chest strap and you can literally have your phone open. I, t- I often have my phone on my computer when I'm um, sitting in, and I'm working throughout the day and I can see if I'm not breathing properly, I will actually drop my HRV pretty low. And then I can do, I can like, you know, pause, do some breath work and actually get my HRV up. And I really think that like this, these continuous data streams are going to get smaller, faster, better. And eventually they'll be implantable 
Um, there's already a CGM that's implantable. Like whether people want implantables, I do, but not people, maybe not everybody does. But I'd say like in the next few years, people are going to get really, really interested in stress and being able to monitor stress in a real time fashion so that you can, because cause we, we, everybody's dealing with anxiety and a lot of people aren't doing the things that they know they could do to be better at managing their mental health. And it's a, there's a mind body approach to this. So there's all these breathwork apps that are coming out, but soon these are all going to be powered with continuous data streams. Um, and also just the, the fact that like the, the, the work that I'm doing as a doctor is getting easier for health coaches to learn how to do. And there's even better platforms coming out like heads up health that are pulling in all these data streams and giving pr- pr- coaches and practitioners like me the ability to take this data and analyze it and layer it and actually come up with insights for people. And then eventually there's going to be, you know, just like people are going to just going to get reports on their, like, right. here's what happened yesterday. You ate this many yeah. times. You had this many, um, HRV, you know, um, drops, you, you know, slept this many hours. Like here's, here's our recommendations that you do for the next week. It's all going to get automated. A lot of insights are getting turned into programs and systems and systematized and it's getting cheaper. It's getting faster. It's getting more consumer. Everything I was doing 10 years ago that was ultra expensive is now turning into consumer products. So companies are finding ways to make these things scale through AI, through machine learning. And also one of the bigger trends is the way we do research is going to change. So we used to do research by having hypothesis and gathering data and like running it on a small, you know, like controlled group of people, a few hundred people, maybe if you're lucky, a few thousand people. Now we have these massive platforms that are taking in all this information and we can run AI and machine learning on these massive trends and start giving people insights into their health and start running studies on whole cities of people who are wearing these, these wearables. So, I mean, that's kind of where natural cycles came from. And this is really where I think a lot of science is going to come from. It's going to, we're going to run studies that are more efficient, that are, that are better designed because we're going to start with better hypothesis. So we're going to start with large trends of data that we're already going to be able to gather. I love that. And I think that's what you and Anne, uh, that's what Anne started with and that's what you're ending with. So it seems yeah. like that's kind of one of the biggest takeaways. And and I love it too, because I think there's going to be the advent of potentially more digital therapeutics when we have all of this data. Yeah. There are ways that people can can monitor and control and prevent um, some of these diseases and, and lifestyle choices. Very exciting. I, I'm in. Um, implant in me, 23 in me, and all the things. Uh, I'll be in all the betas, all the alphas, <laughs> probably in your trials. I'm first in line. Thank you so much, Anne and Molly, so for much, being Brent. here today. You, we Molly. appreciate you. And here's to yeah. a healthier future yeah. for all of us. We'll see you guys next time. Wow, you guys. Those two couldn't be more different in their approach, which is exactly why I loved having them on. I'm sure you picked up on this as well. But here's Anne Wojcicki, you know, healthcare titan, genetics expert, and she is a wealth of knowledge, but she really recommends everything kind of by the book. To her credit, <laughs> she wants to ensure that the things she's recommending are FDA approved, valid, reliable. You know, they've been studied and tested over and over again. And I love that. And I think that's really important. But then you have someone like Dr. Molly, who is a doctor, but is a little bit more on the biohacker side. She, from the time I've known her over a decade ago, has always been trying new things, new devices, new tools, new studies, even if they weren't 
totally reliably approved. And she tests them out on herself first before she recommends them to others. And I think that's really interesting. The nuances of those two types of strategies to optimize your own personal health and then therefore help others optimize their health are wildly on opposite ends of the spectrum. One thing that I didn't get to touch on with Anne or Molly was kind of how I'm starting to use some of this information in my life. For instance, I read this study a few months ago that claimed there is a specific gene that has been found to make people 30% more resistant to COVID-19. My husband and I and my whole family, immediate family, have not had COVID yet. Actually, strangely, now that I'm saying that, neither have my parents nor has my husband's parents. Oh my goodness, I'm just realizing this in real time. And so I went to 23andMe. There's a search function where you can search up literally all your genes to see if you have this one specific gene. I put in this weird hash text. We can drop it in the show notes if anyone's interested in searching their own genome. And lo and behold, my husband and I both have this gene. And it makes me wonder, is this why I haven't gotten COVID yet? (laughs) Are we more protected? Again, There's not FDA stamps on this just yet, but my biohacker sense tells me that maybe there's something to this. And it also just makes me wonder if we can figure out things like this. Is there a future where once a day, every time I pee in the toilet, my phone pops up with a notification that tells me what all my levels are at right now and what I should do the rest of the day to maintain my energy and mood. Is there a skincare supplement or a hair care supplement or a diet supplement that I will take personally for me that is Again, making my body feel the best it can be because of my unique makeup. I am so excited for this future that might exist, even though we're not there yet, even though people are trying. But I I want the smart toilet. I want the specialized shampoo. I want the, the test that sits on my counter every morning that lets me spit in a tube or swab my nose and tells me, any type of even minuscule amount of coronavirus or cold or flu that I might have in my body. I just want it to be easy. I want it to be reported in data. And I want to know more about myself. And I think that this is going to be a really exciting future that we all get to live in maybe more than a decade from now, maybe not. But we're headed in the right direction. And that makes me very excited. So what does this mean for you? Well, I think the number one thing that both of them had in common was that no matter what, you should arm yourself with as much personal information about your health as possible so that you are in control. How do you do that? Well, yeah, I do think having your genetics mapped out is a great blueprint of where to start. I do think getting some basic blood labs done, which you probably have to do in your standard physicals, is a great place of where to start. If you have those two things, you probably at least have your baseline of what you're predisposed to, what you maybe aren't predisposed to, and how you can start optimizing. I mentioned this in the episode, but I think a lot of people are really afraid of getting all of this information back about their health because there might be 
some negative factors in there that may be hereditary or, you know, just part of your, your DNA. But imagine if you had a predisposition to something like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's and you could start to learn how to eat better or exercise differently that could prevent or at least put off these diseases. Wouldn't you want to extend your life to be healthier longer? And in Molly's viewpoint and something I personally prescribe to, isn't it kind of interesting to test the types of sleep and diet and exercise and general lifestyle choices you're making every day to figure out how to feel better every single day right now? I am of the belief that uh, we should all be experimenting with all of these things. I don't think there's any one diet that's right for anyone. I think we all need a different type of diet. I think we need a different type of exercise. Some of us may need more or less sleep. Some of us may need to fall asleep at different times of the day and wake up at different times of the morning. And until we run these tests on ourselves, how are we ever going to know that, right? And, And the downside of not doing this is that our mood is unstable, our stress is high, our mental health is a wreck, and therefore, like Molly mentioned, the brain-body connection is tied together. Our bodies are a wreck. We don't feel good. We're not good people to everyone around us. We are living less long, and ultimately, you know, we are creating a less healthy life. The cool thing about where we're headed now is that it used to be so expensive. I mean, 10 years ago, these tests were thousands of dollars. Now they're a couple hundred bucks. 10 years ago, these continuous glucose monitors didn't exist. And, you know, these websites to interpret your genome didn't exist. And now they're free or low priced and we can all start trialing them and experimenting with them. I also really believe in what Anne and Molly were telling us at the very end of the episode about where this is going next. Because of all these tools, whether they're hardware devices like watches or Fitbits or rings that we're wearing, or because of these new websites or apps that are tracking some of our data, we now have entirely new data samples of what similar people like us are doing to optimize their health and where they're getting into ruts. And I really believe that we are going to see some of the biggest breakthroughs in healthcare and personalized wellness in the next five to 10 years and we've, than we've ever seen before. I'm excited about that future. I'm of the belief that our longevity is going to continue to rise. I think the average lifespan right now is about 77, something like mid-70s in the U.S. And I'm kind of with the scientists and researchers who are thinking we could bump that number up closer to 100 in the course of the next 25 to 50 years because of all these breakthroughs. So if you want to live a healthier, longer life, why not start now? Why not go figure out a few things about yourself, tinker, with your day-to-day lifestyle choices and just see how you start to feel over the next coming weeks, months, and years as you take a closer approach to your own personalized wellness. If you liked this episode, I would love for you to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your shows. And if you want to follow me, I'm at Brit on just about every social network, or you can follow the podcast at First In Line. 